Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and on today's episode, Senrev CEO and founder Coral Chung discussed how she built a fashion brand with a tech background, why luxury fashion isn't moving as fast as it should, and figuring out the future of an independent brand. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Coral. So Senrev is a handbag brand that's about four years in now? No, two and a half. Two and a half. Okay. Take us back to the beginning. Uh, Where were you? What were you thinking? Why did you start it? How did it all happen? Yeah. So we launched in November of 2016 Uh um, and it's been a crazy ride since then. The initial inspiration for this company Um, was really twofold. One is just my personal experience as a young professional um, working in consulting and tech and fashion and never being able to find that perfect luxury work bag. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had traveled internationally a lot because I was based in Hong Kong at one time. And uh, I always felt like it was so difficult to stay organized while I traveled, um, you know, Oftentimes my bag would be a complete mess going through the airport security. Things would fall out because there's no zipper security. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just felt like there was an opportunity to do something different and something better. And and there were women out there like me who needed it. Mm -hmm. I think the second element was that having worked in uh, retail consulting and uh, having worked at Prada, I kind of saw the different trends that were happening in the industry. And I felt that there was a real opportunity to create a company in this direct-to-consumer business model, to have a price point that's quite disruptive, to be able to achieve you know, the first element, mm-hmm. right? Whereas I think um, traditionally it would have been difficult in that uh, typical wholesale retail model. To even break in. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so yeah, to... to go a little bit further, you had a retail background, but not a design background. Mm -hmm. So when you're coming from that perspective, obviously you're seeing, okay, there's an opportunity here to to start Mm -hmm. a business. Um, The the lanes are are a little bit clearer than they used to be Mm -hmm. uh, to get off the ground. But how do you, how do you start building? Mm -hmm. It's uh, a very long and short learning process, (laughs) you know, because I would say in the beginning, there's so much to learn. And even though I had experience in retail and I had experience in consumer and um, it it was not necessarily an entrenched kind of 30-year type of experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so to a degree, I felt that that was helpful because I was looking at everything with a fresh pair of eyes and I wasn't... Uh, focused on, you know, traditional methodologies Mm -hmm. and having the same traditional assumptions that drove, you know, the traditional brands. Right. Um, And so I did really flip everything over and kind of think about it differently. And I will say in the beginning, um, that was one of the challenges, you know, because a lot of entrenched industry experts, whether they were 
mentors of mine or different advisors or different investors, they kind of looked at this idea and they were like, oh, that's not possible. You know, this is just not how we do it. You're never going to be able to get the cost structure you want. Um, you're never going to break through as a brand unless you invest, you know, millions upon millions. You know, how can you create this um this luxury concept without all the heritage behind mm -hmm. it. You yourself, you don't have a design background, you know, so there was a lot. They of... told you basically everything that, you know, you were <laughs> exactly there was worried about. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, disbelief, uh -huh. you know, and I Even think like what, what about time was this like late or like early 2010s? Uh, no, this was uh, 20. 2014. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I think all of the direct to consumer, you know, brand movement had started. So, yeah, it was <laughs> early days, but I think the main difference for us is uh, the price point. Mm -hmm. And I think people felt that, uh, you know, people from traditional luxury felt that our price point was too low and we couldn't achieve that, you know, made in Italy, luxury materials, luxury construction and artisanal process with our price point. Mm -hmm. And then the more kind of mass luxury brands felt that our price point was too high because, you know, they felt like, hey, as a new brand, how are you going to justify this price point? Mm -hmm. And what, what about is the price point? So our products are generally ranging from five hundred to a thousand dollars. We try to keep most things under a thousand dollars. We do have a few special items that are above that, and a few smaller bags that are below five hundred. Uh, but in general, that's our kind of main price range. Right, and you you position it as a luxury brand. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about how that production process. Yeah, around. like how did you land on on the price point you wanted? Who did you partner with? And especially when you know you just have to basically see opportunities mm -hmm. that may not even exist yet. So, mm -hmm. so how did you go about that? Uh, there was a lot of learning and trial and error, and uh, about a year and a half of preparation and development work happened before we were able to launch. And during that time, I had investigated manufacturing locally in the U.S. and New York or California. I had looked at Asia. I had looked at many places in Europe, Spain, Turkey, and so forth. And um, when I dug into it, I ultimately felt like Italy was still the best place because of the quality, because of the legacy of craftsmanship, because there was an ecosystem where they were really still training these artisans and there was a system. And many of the factories that I had met with were generation old. So it was really passed down from, you know, their, their parents, their father, um, to now, you know, the kids are running it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there was something very special about that and something about the way that they created product that they really injected a lot of soul and creativity into it. And so we had um, created designs and we were kind of in a prototyping phase. So I worked with many of these partners to see, you know, what is their interpretation of the execution of our vision from a product perspective. Right. Um, and the partner that I ended up working with um, today in Florence, Italy, is uh, just, it was 
It was fine-tuned in a way that is hard to describe because they had the exact same sketch, the exact same pattern, but they did little things to really just elevate the product. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about how the corners are rounded. It's about how perfect the edge paint is. It's about um, all these subtle things that come together and just make it really beautiful and and even though, you know, the original seed came from one version, mm-hmm. the, their interpretation was so much more elevated and beautiful. Mm-hmm. So the next step there was trying to convince them to work with us because <laughs> they pretty much work with traditional luxury brands. Right. Um, they've never really worked with an American brand and they uh, certainly have never worked with a startup company, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we both um, really just had a lot of chemistry and they were also really in love with the beautiful product vision that we had. Um, and I think they were looking, uh, in a way that was quite, um, I would say different from many of the industry experts who, who were doubting this concept, you know, they were looking at their range of brands and products that they were working on Mm -hmm. and, you know, they see pretty much all the major electric brands and they saw that we were doing something totally different mm-hmm. and they had enough experience and confidence to believe in us. Right. So, so what they saw that was different was, did that come down to the design or, or did you sit down with them and say like, you know, here's how we plan to, you know, sell to, to this new type of customer behavior. Here's mm-hmm. how we're doing it differently. Like what, what exact, where exactly did the differentiation come from? Um, It's definitely a combination of those elements. Mm -hmm. So the design, first and foremost, they felt was unique and beautiful. And I think because they have a very creative and soulful approach to the process, it's a very emotional thing. Um, I think the second thing was uh, we approached them in a really professional and prepared manner. You know, we had done a lot of homework and Mm. we had various prototypes and we had a very clear vision for what we wanted and we were also very focused and we um you know I think a lot of partners are nervous especially with startup brands Mm. that you might do a ton of experimentation and prototyping and it may never launch. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly happened before, mm-hmm. right? But because we were very prepared and we shared um, a very strong vision for our launch uh, and vision for the brand, I think they were really inspired by that as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so are you finding that, you know, on the on the partner side, in order to achieve this this level of, of, of luxury and how you're, you're defining it now, you need like that that partner that has the experience to mm-hmm. do that and are they like making room in the like for these new types of mm-hmm. of uh, business models like how did you want it to be you know I think a lot of times the the new you know brand mantras like speed and, and having like mm-hmm. a faster production cycle and being more nimble more agile sure how do you basically like get your way in there uh, with wanting to do things a little bit you know faster at a higher metabolism yeah, that's a great question because um, I will say it's it's uh, it is what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. You know, we want um, almost real time, just in time manufacturing as much as possible. You know, we um, are very very tight around inventory. Um, in fact, we just launched this Earth Day campaign about this idea that you know 
traditional luxury brands oftentimes overproduce and you know, they have chosen a path to sometimes having to destroy the extra product. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something that we really don't want to do, you know, and it's it's something that we work very closely with our partner on to make sure that we're inventory planning in the right way, because right. it really starts with being able to predict the demand and not overproduce. Mm -hmm. And not um, being like 18 months out. On exactly. Your exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing is creating a process from the manufacturing side that mm -hmm. allows for that efficiency. Right. So the first thing I think that was a smart decision for that purpose is that um, our raw materials in our tanneries are also co-located in the same region. So we don't have a situation where we're shipping a ton of, you know, uh, lining or leathers or hardware from many different places in the world because that drags out the production timeline. Mm -hmm. um, I think secondly, we've really worked with our factory to focus. And I think for them, it was more palatable because we had launched in a very focused way. Mm -hmm. We only had two shapes, the maestra and the doctor, whereas many brands will have, you know, so many SKUs mm -hmm. every season. Right? right. And it's really, really hard to manage the volumes mm -hmm. for each. Mm -hmm. um, whereas because we knew that these two were going to be you know, what we wanted to launch with, what we've really wanted to invest in um, on the manufacturing side, they could invest in the process and the skills required to execute on that. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's interesting because when you hear this, this word luxury, it, it's changed so much, just how people like want to define it and mm -hmm. how people talk about it. So with your with your positioning, where did you kind of fit it because you had these heritage brands being like okay you know that it doesn't stand on its own like you can't just like pull luxury out of thin air and then mm -hmm. you have you know brands on the other end uh you know wanting to to make a, you know a certain level of, of product and quality more accessible to more people mm -hmm. how have you sort of come to terms with that with that word and how customers perceive it look for it you know seek it out and are willing to spend on it uh, it's really a, a balance of a couple things. So senrev means sense and dream. And it's this idea that you can have something that's fantasy and emotional and, you know, dreamlike with something that's sensible and everyday and practical and, you know, versatile. So it's really combining these two elements. And that's how we think about luxury and mm -hmm. how luxury has evolved. Um, it's really serving this modern woman's lifestyle. You know, she's really multifaceted. She's really busy. Um, she wants certain things that are convenient. That's considered luxurious. Right. Um, she wants certain things that are really thoughtful and personalized for her, you know, and the way that we created the product and our product development process was very special in that we incorporated so many points of feedback from women who need to use this bag every day, but also at the same time want it to look beautiful and she can wear it with a beautiful dress to cocktails and dinner, but at the same time, you know, take it to a board meeting and look serious and presentable. So all of these are really considered and that's what we feel like uh, defines, you know, this this very loaded word of luxury for us. Right. I think at the same time, you know, from a price perspective, um, we wanted to make sure that we could deliver on the quality. Um, and so it is elevated. Mm -hmm. You know, it certainly separates us from, I would say, kind of the mass luxury set of brands, which are usually in that 200 to 300 
um, dollar range. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, for a quality of our product, it's usually priced well mm-hmm. over a thousand dollars. Right. So, so you launched with an online store. How is that? Is that still like the main the main way that you do business? Mm-hmm. Um, and and how did you go about communicating? You know, everything basically that you just said in an online environment. It's um it's our definitely our main channel, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we've had so much growth in that channel. Um, really just organically in the beginning, you know, when we launched in November of 2016, um, we had, I think, a couple things that we did really right, right? First of all, we had done a lot of prep work to understand how well the products would be received in the marketplace. Um, And so we knew that these two styles confidently would have some kind of breakthrough because it was sufficiently different in all of these uh, elements that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing was we balance this, you know, fashion community acceptance very well with the business community acceptance and just the general community of women that we were focused on very well mm-hmm. um, because we knew that. Uh, we're not like a traditional tech company, right? It can't just be a mechanical quantitative process. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're not a traditional fashion company. So it can't just be relying on, you know, editorials Mm -hmm. and things like that. So it's a really combination of all of these things. Um, I think in the beginning we had a huge fan base in certain pockets of women, you know, in New York, women in finance, you know, women in marketing or creative, um, entrepreneurs, uh, people who um, had this certain lifestyle. And so very quickly we would have situations where, you know, for example, there's a high-powered women conference in Half Moon Bay in California mm-hmm. um, every year. And I think like three of the four panelists had a SunRev bag. Um, and so, you know, it started just taking off very organically from that perspective as well. Yeah. So that that cross-section that you're speaking to um, of, of having like a tech based fashion brand. It's it's interesting because we hear from from a lot of um, startups that are using customer data to make decisions and you, you know there's a lot of work happening on the back end that you know for traditional fashion companies just doesn't it wasn't really happening. It was all based on like gut and, and curation mm-hmm. and um, you know certain editorial eyes. And so how do you what are like the, the benefits that you see in, in running a company, a fashion company that way and and do you see like the long lasting advantages being what what's going to set apart the the you know the new fashion brands that that will thrive from the from the older ones of the past I think data is really, really critical, you know, and I think it's a huge advantage we have as a direct-to-consumer brand because Mm -hmm. we have that direct relationship with the customer. Um, But I am of the mindset that, you know, like SenRev balances this fantasy element and this reality element, um, data needs to be balanced by gut Mm -hmm. and by inspiration and by emotional things, Mm -hmm. right? I think companies, especially in this consumer and especially in luxury and fashion 
um, where there's so many other elements, you know, aesthetic trends and things like that, right? It, It needs to be a combination. I think companies that solely focus on data, they're really missing something, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I think uh, as a consumer, you feel that. You feel like it's too mechanical. Like, is the algorithm Mm -hmm. driving this? Not, you know, a human driving this. Um, And I think traditional companies who are not as able to incorporate the data miss out on a huge element of customer centricity and and actually oftentimes that causes them to miss out on the trend that's coming right. you know because they don't um they're they're kind of fixated on a traditional way mm-hmm. that they're, they're not able to grasp that oh wow things are moving in a totally mm-hmm. different direction right so for us in. it's a combination mm-hmm. and so how has that influenced how you've built your team like how do you make sure that you have you know equal strength on on both ends of that spectrum yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and that's another area where we've done things quite differently. So our team is mostly based of people who have not had entrenched long experiences in fashion or retail. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, um, they tend to have characteristics that make them uh, quick learners. They're very ambitious. Um, and even if they're not data analytics experts, they have a very analytical mind, which is to say that, you know, if anybody on our team looks at some numbers or data, they can draw some insights from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have that facility. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're able to use that to ask the right questions. Right. Um, and they're not afraid of it. You know, they kind of lean towards that. So those are some of the things that we look for. Oftentimes they come from a finance background or retail background. We had a woman who was a lawyer for 10 years, but just always really passionate about fashion and luxury. And, you know, it was clearly a huge part of her that she wasn't able to exert as a mm-hmm. lawyer. And, you know, we were a really great home for her because she had the right combination of being able to grow quickly and learn quickly mm-hmm. along with that passion and analytical skill set. Right. And so we talk about data a lot, but a lot of times it ends up being kind of in the in the vague uh, terms. Mm-hmm. And so how did you figure out like what questions to ask when when looking to customers for insight, um, whether that was for, you know, new product development or or anything else around the business? And you know, how do you know like what, what, what questions to ask and, and what information to find? Because I feel like that will take you to a certain point and then mm-hmm. then you know the the brand authority has to kick in you can't yeah. you can't let customers that it would just be too far flung like and go in too many directions if yeah. you if you really get bogged down by the data and yeah. so knowing when to you know make make decisions um, but also knowing you know what what to look for seems to be really important how do you how do you figure that out yeah that's super important and I think um, we are very very careful not to run into this analysis paralysis type of thing right. which I think companies that are data driven sometimes get caught in this weird loop you know mm-hmm. because the data is sort of in the circular logic mm-hmm. reinforcing something that is untrue mm-hmm. so we're always checking ourselves to make sure that we don't do that you know we just have a reality check like hey is that that seems so off, you know, that can't be right. Um, So I think the data is as good as really the hypothesis, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. So you have to have a strong uh, point of view, Mm -hmm. right? And, and, And basically, to me, the data is there to confirm or deny 
right. Um, it's it's a supporting element. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the central element. The data is not going to give you that hypothesis. Right. Um, it's only going to support or deny that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and your hypothesis was that, you know, women are, you know, working and, and looking for bags that are Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You know, my feeling was that um, there's been a huge trend in the overall luxury market and the women who are purchasing these types of products. Mm -hmm. Right. The profile of this woman has fundamentally changed because you know, women are participating in the workforce in a totally different way. You know, if you look at Stanford, where I went to business school, it used to always be kind of like Mm 80-20 women, men, Mm -hmm. and now it's close to Mm 50-50, you know? And and I think it starts from that, right? It really starts from how women are entering um, business or law or you know, all these different fields in an astronomical rate. Mm -hmm. And I think that really changes their lifestyle going forward, Mm -hmm. right? And what their needs are. So there are some fundamental like macro changes happening, Mm -hmm. right? And on top of that, there's been a huge movement around uh, just shining a light on what empowering women means, Mm -hmm. right? Around empowering girls, equality, and so forth. Um, And that's, by the way, one of our core brand pillars is empowerment um, because we feel like, you know, that's really what we're here to do. Right. We want to make sure that we're serving this woman in the right way. And whenever there is something that shines a light on a social issue, we definitely give our opinion on Mm -hmm. it. And that's kind of the the brand force. And also, you know, you have to, you know, build when you don't have the heritage of a a long lasting community. you know, luxury brand, customers have to know what they're buying into. Do you feel like that's more important for a brand like Sunrev rather than, you know, we've seen traditional brands, they they get skittish around around speaking out and, you know, there's not, the, the idea of like a brand voice is relatively new. Um, do you think that, you know, you're you're sort of setting the tone for what, what that can be and, and that kind of makes up for the lack of history that the brand has? Yeah, you know, that's one of those things that I think we did very, very early on is we wanted to make sure that we defined what our brand values were and we spoke and communicated to the community, to, you know, partners, um, to any of our stakeholders in that manner. So we have a really cute acronym that's memorable called wifey Mm. and in short you know w means wit and so you know we we want to be intelligent Mm -hmm. right and we want to believe that our customers are intelligent um, but we don't want to be too serious and lecturing right Mm -hmm. and so still have a sense of humor i is innovation we want to be on the cutting edge F is freedom right and i think that one is really related to this idea that oftentimes women or brands or various things get bucketed into narrow definitions Mm -hmm. because of history or tradition or just social pressures. Um, And so freedom is really important to us that, you know, people can define themselves the way they want to. Um, And then the first E is empowerment, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then the second E is elegance, which uh, really captures this aesthetic component, but also really represents this beauty from the inside or the outside. And so um, this set of brand values 
really, really is carried through in everything that we do Mm -hmm. um, for how we hire people, um, our social media communications. Um, We actually have these realistic conversations of, well, but is that is that really elegant? You know, I feel like that's not really putting beauty into the world Mm -hmm. or um, is that empowering or is that in conflict with that? Mm -hmm. So I think it's been really helpful to have that as a guiding light right. for everyone. Right. And built in from, mm-hmm. from the And it's very out. authentic. Yeah. So, so obviously there's, you know, a lot to be gained from, from starting from scratch with a mm-hmm. new, a new type of business model. What are the challenges that you've had as a, as a new luxury brand? Um, there have been many. <laughs> Where do I begin? Um, I think the first challenge I mentioned was that, you know, before we really started and had a product and had all these, um, uh, you know, amazing fans and this momentum that we built up, I think there were a lot of doubters. So first of all, you know, I think me personally, I had to overcome uh, just this fear of failure, you know, this, you know, mental block of, gosh, everyone I know and respect is telling me that this is crazy. You know, should I leave my high flying tech job to really pursue this? Um, so I think that was one, right? And I think once I made that commitment, um, the other things were challenging in the kind of acute tactical way, but it was not psychologically and emotionally as challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, finding the manufacturing partner, convincing them to work with us and continuing that relationship is so challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think, there's a big cultural barrier. Uh, there's a big language barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time um, when I flew to Italy, gosh, once a month at the minimum, you know, really just for two days sometimes because they needed to see me, mm-hmm. you know, and we needed to have that conversation face to face. And so um, I think from a lifestyle perspective, you know, it was challenging mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, I have a six-year-old daughter and she was three when we started. And so uh, it's been a little crazy to manage all of that, you know, sure, yeah. and we've definitely done things where, you know, we accidentally brought nuts to her nut-free school <laughs> or I've had to miss her dance competitions because of some emergency happening. Right. Um, so that that part of it, I think, personally has been really challenging. Yeah, yeah that all is happening behind the scenes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so basically, you're putting in this work to figure out, you know, what the, what the model and, and infrastructure is for a modern luxury brand. Do you see brands like Prada where you were um, the, the more traditional brands catching up or or switching gears. You've definitely talked to designers who maybe started wholesale, then saw at least a DTC opportunity and, mm-hmm. and, and switched gears. But when you get to like the really big lux- global luxury brand level, when are they going to catch up? It's so difficult. <laughs> it's just really difficult. You know, and this question is actually one that when we do investor meetings and things like that, they often ask, you know, are you concerned about that? Um, and concerned in that they'll they'll see this opportunity become more competitive? Exactly. Um, and um, my response usually is that it's so hard for them. You know, they have this entrenched organizational structure because 
look, at the end of the day, it's all the people mm-hmm. who are making the decisions, right? It's really um, that's driving the business. And they have this very hierarchical approach, you know, that really um, isn't isn't conducive to innovation or conducive to risk taking. Mm-hmm. And I think it's understandable because they've had so much success to date. You know, they don't feel this pressure right. to really innovate or change. Mm-hmm. And and it's totally understandable that they're also nervous about that because, again, they've been so successful, you know, and they want to protect that so much. Um, so I think the culture and the organization makes it really hard to change. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, they have all this existing infrastructure, whether it's their store footprint or their wholesale relationships. Um, there's there's this difficult situation of channel conflict that they have to manage mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I think that's really complicated. Yeah. Um, so all of that combined makes it so that the speed by which they do things is just has to be very slow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's extremely difficult right. for them to move quickly. Just the nature. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, do you could you ever see Senrev existing in the way that it does within a more traditional house of brands? Um, you know, I think I think I'm someone who is very open minded and very flexible. Mm-hmm. I would say that's something that uh, I generally am, I kind of approach the world that way. So I I don't really say never mm-hmm. or no a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely a yes and person, which has its own set of problems. <laughs> um, but for that particular question, I think it would have to be a really special situation mm-hmm. because I think the gap is quite uh, big still in terms of how we view the world and how they view the world. Right. And, um, you know, our business really is built on how we view the world. Right. And so if there comes a day where we're making such an impact that the whole industry is changing, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's happening. Right. But because of what I said, right. a lot so, of things have to happen slowly. Um, I wouldn't rule that out as a possibility, Mm -hmm. but I think it's going to take some time. Right. And you have the opportunity to do it on your own for now. Yeah. I mean, for now, I think one of the most rewarding things is to see uh, an idea that, again, many people disputed or doubted um, come into fruition in a way that's making an impact, you know, and I think. Um, some of the most rewarding things are just women we admire loving our products, you know, whether it's celebrities like Selma Blair or Priyanka Chopra, whether it's um, business leaders like executives in in tech or Wall Street, Mm -hmm. Um, just so many inspirational women that we are constantly inspired by really appreciates what we're doing in the world, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And then there are people like... Gosh, you know, amazing, amazing husbands who bought it for their wives on Valentine's Day or amazing um, sons or daughters who bought it for their mom or their mom uh, buying it for their daughter. You know, we have a showroom in San Francisco now, which Mm -hmm. has been quite an amazing experience. Um, And we've had people come in from Singapore, you know, saying, I'm in San Francisco for two days, but I really needed to come into your showroom because I wanted to see the arrangement of colors and styles and just try it out. And so we're so um, just honored by that, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's such a privilege um, to be able to 
introduce something new that was just a concept and now see it in a real way. And I think for me, I had always worked in tech and consulting. And so the end product was less physical and tangible, Mm -hmm. right? And now, you know, I I always like secretly feel so delighted when I see women uh, with a maestro bag, like just in the street, like a stranger or at the airport. Um, and it's, it's cool. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you can ride that wave. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Coral. We're about out of time, but really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed the episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. As a thank you for listening, we're passing along a limited time introductory offer on a three-month subscription to Glossy Plus. Glossy Plus members access unlimited stories, exclusive research, and more. Join today for just $49. That's $80 off by entering the code intro at checkout at glossy.co slash subscribe. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.